Well, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll know we've been looking at the Apostle Paul's description of the true Christian life. We've been pursuing, actually, for weeks now, one simple thought. It's this. It's the uh, thought that our lives, actually, are stunted as Christians if we don't really understand what the Christian life looks like. Or, to put it on its head, our lives truly grow as Christians when we really deeply absorb what the Christian life looks like. And I've tried to expose, or perhaps more precisely, tried to let this chapter in Romans, Romans chapter 8, expose and dispose of some common misunderstandings which actually can cripple the lives of Christians. The fear that God hasn't fully forgiven us. A wrong understanding of how it is actually Christians are transformed. And then last week we began to look actually at another block that there so often is to Christian growth, the experience of suffering. The Apostle Paul told us very clearly in verse 17 of chapter 8, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. There is no glory without suffering. If we do not profoundly understand that, if we do not accept that, then actually the experiences of life, the real experiences of life, which will be uh, partly suffering, will erode our relationship with God as our life accumulates its struggles and disappointments. Our love for God will die, either by the slow erosion of wave after wave of niggles and disappointments and irritations, or perhaps actually by a single torpedo of suffering, which even is now, now is heading towards our wafer-thin hull. We must understand how suffering fits into the Christian life. And last week we, we probed what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul says, in short, it is worth it. There is an eternal weight of glory uh, 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 awaiting us, which far outweighs our present light and momentary sufferings. We are waiting for resurrection. Our resurrection, the resurrection of the whole of God's creation. But the Apostle Paul doesn't want to minimise or whitewash over the reality of those present sufferings. Now, he is clear there is a real heaviness to them now. Even if one day they will be outweighed by the overwhelming weight of glory on the other side of the scales. That's not because they're totally light. In themselves, sufferings today are heavy. This morning Paul is going to explore then that other side of what he wants to tell us about suffering. He wants to tell us how to live before 
we get that overwhelming, eternal weight of glory. In order to do that, he's going to tell us that actually suffering is the experience of God's whole creation now. Suffering is the authentic experience actually of every Christian now. And then most profoundly he's going to tell us actually suffering is the experience of God now. That's what we're going to see. First of all, suffering is the experience of the whole of creation. Creation itself, he says, is frustrated. The creation, verse 19, waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. When Paul uses... um, uh, No, sorry, let's go on to 20. The, uh, uh, The creation is subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. When he uses that word frustration, the creation was subjected to frustration. He actually has one Old Testament book in particular in mind, the book of Ecclesiastes. The repeated refrain of Ecclesiastes is meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And it's actually the same word. It means empty, futile, worthless. So, so Paul is saying here, the whole of creation is subjected to emptiness, to futility, to worthlessness, to meaninglessness, to what the NIV calls frustration. If you want to read more of that, read Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes we find the author, in actually very 21st century terms, protesting that money and possessions don't bring contentment. Wisdom actually only serves to help us to see more clearly the meaninglessness of this world. As the uh, gentleman once remarked to Dr. Johnson, you're a philosopher, Dr. Johnson. I've tried too in my time to be a philosopher, but I don't know how. Cheerfulness always breaks in. What wisdom does. Justice, says the uh, preacher in Ecclesiastes, often seems to elude us. And then finally, actually, death renders all wisdom, all acquisitions, all relationships futile, empty, worthless, meaningless. Ecclesiastes, says Paul, is absolutely right. The whole of creation is subjected to frustration, to futility. And that's not because it's an intrinsically meaningless universe. It was an act of God, says Paul. It, it was a subjection to frustration by the will of the one who subjected it. Did you see that in verse 20? Genesis chapters 1 to 3 describes that very clearly, how God created his universe as anything but futile, anything but meaningless and frustrated. It's described as very good. He placed mankind in that world in order that mankind should care for his world on his behalf. They would be his image bearers. They would do his job for him. But they rejected that role. They decided actually they would rather abuse and rape the earth rather than honour it. It was full of all kinds of fruitfulness and yet they chose the one thing God said they should not eat, the tree 
uh, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the consequence is spoken of very clearly in Genesis 3. The result is actually described both as an inevitable consequence of that uh, disobedience of God and actually as God's judicial decision. The inevitable consequence is found in God's word to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you, he says to Adam. The judicial decision is found in God's word to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. The creation now, by inevitable consequence and the divine decree of God, is cursed. Evil stalks the world. The universe now, says the Bible, is frustrated. But not forever. Oh no, not forever. God has a much bigger plan. It was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's last week's territory. The universe itself is looking forward to what is firmly promised to God by God, the recreation of the universe, its rebirth, its resurrection, in which God's children will enjoy eternal glory and freedom and God's creation will share in that too. This is God's plan. This is what the whole of creation longs for. Actually, Paul uses an extraordinary image to describe the creation's present existence. Um, In verse, verse 19, the creation waits, he says, in eager expectation for the sons of God to to be revealed. He actually uses two words that are described uh, together, eager expectation. The main, main verb of the sentence means eager expectation on its own. But then he adds another one onto that to intensify it, which gives us the picture of someone standing on tiptoe, craning their neck, looking with their eyes. One commentator has described it's like, uh, it's like boys looking over a wall at an orchard full of apples. Creation is on tiptoe, says Paul, straining with every muscle to see that future that God has promised. Because creation itself, he says, hates that present curse, hates the injustice, hates the futility, hates the meaninglessness, hates death. Hates it more profoundly than any depressed philosopher, more profoundly than the the most miserable dying millionaire who finds his money was all useless, more, more profoundly than the most heartbroken, tearful mourner. Creation hates it. Creation stands on tiptoe and waits. And waits, says Paul. And it groans. Verse 22, we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childhood, childbirth, right up to the present time. This is not the groaning of someone dying, this is the groaning of someone giving birth. For most women, childbirth will perhaps be their most painful experience, but actually also their most joyful. That is the agony and ecstasy 
of God's creation, says Paul. The pains of childbirth. Paul is calling us, you see, to realism. When we think of this subject of suffering, he says, remember actually the whole of creation is going through this. The whole of creation is groaning. So why shouldn't we? Injustices occur, the good die young, wicked people live long. Misery and happiness seem to strike as randomly as bolts of lightning. Down through the ages, actually, a lot of philosophers have tried to persuade us that we should not experience what what just seems to happen randomly as bad at all. These things just are, they say, they can't be bad. Alexander Pope, for instance, in the 18th century wrote, in spite of pride, in erring reason's spite, one truth is clear, whatever is, is right. Or um, a modern outspoken protagonist of this view is our, our, uh, our own Richard Dawkins, back in 1994, for instance, in an article in The Times, Dawkins derided a Christian response of horror at a meaningless tragedy that had, had, had occurred, saying, in the universe that we observe, there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And our hearts cry, this is not so. Alexander Pope, you are not telling me the truth when you say whatever is, is right. It doesn't feel like it. I do not think it is. At the depths of my heart, it is not right. Richard Dawkins, you are wrong. And the Bible says that is right. The universe is struggling with this. The universe feels the frustration of its present existence. The Bible describes actually uh, the, the universe, creation itself, rejoicing actually when God finally comes in righteousness. Psalm 98 looks forward to God's final victory and saying this, let the sea resound and everything in it, in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. Jesus actually once said that if people stopped praising him then actually the stones themselves would cry out. So profound was creation's delight in him. We are creation's voice. We do not speak, he says. Creation will find another way to speak. We give creation its voice of praise and of pain. While, the, while we work the, walk the earth, this is our lot. We must acknowledge that. Let me ask you when, you, when you became a Christian, did you find, actually, that you floated three inches above the earth? 
I don't think so. Jesus didn't do that. He doesn't do that for us. We remain connected with this creation as it is today. And because we are connected, we must suffer. Because it groans, we must. But Paul is calling us to hope as well. Hope that we saw so clearly last week. Creation cranes its neck looking for that resurrection future. In, in a sense, it, it knows actually it has labour pains, not death pains. And so do we. The first thing then, we must see is that because actually, as it is at the moment, God's creation is frustrated and groaning. We, as part of that present creation, must do so too. The second thing that Paul says uh, reiterates that, intensifies that. Not only the... the um, uh, the experience of all creation. It's, it's, it's in particular the authentic or part of the authentic experience of Christians. Verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as, son, as, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have the Spirit of God. We know from elsewhere that the Spirit actually... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. But there is a problem, says Paul. We have only the first fruits. Our present experience of the Spirit, he says, is the hors d'oeuvre that makes our stomachs long for the feast. It's the aperitif which makes our taste buds sharp and on edge, ready for the rich flavours of the meal to come. It is, the, it is the warm, sunny day in February which makes us long for summer, even though we know that we still will have to go through frosts and floods and gales because we know that one day we're going to enjoy barbecues and flowers and sunshine. That's what our experience of the Spirit is like today. And so because that ministry of God's Spirit is just the first fruits, we too must groan, mustn't we? We haven't yet seen concretely what God has promised on oath to give us. In this hope, verse 24, we were saved. A hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul is calling us now to endurance. The NIV's translation, wait for it patiently, is so bland, is, uh, uh, sadly. It ignores the fact that actually in that sentence there is a third instance of that eager awaiting. We saw it in verse 18 of the creation 
eagerly awaiting. We saw it in verse 23 again of eager awaiting. And now we are eagerly awaiting. But actually the word patience as well, it just doesn't do, do justice to what, what, what Paul is talking about. Because certainly in my vocabulary, patience implies a sort of um, um, sense of uh, relaxed acceptance of a situation. And that's the, there was a word for that and Paul doesn't use that word. He uses a word that, he, uh, 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 that, that is much better translated, endurance. With endurance we eagerly await, says Paul. We do not accept it, we are not relaxed with it. We are craning our necks just like, uh, like, like, like uh, the whole of creation is. But we will endure. We will keep going. We haven't yet seen what God promises us yet, but he's promised it. He's assured us of it when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and fulfilled all his promises up to that moment so he will keep the last of his promises to raise us too. And we endure. Judy tells me that in the second stage of labour, women, as the real birth pains start to come on, sometimes say, I've had enough, I'm going home. Even try to get off the bed sometimes. As the baby enters the birth canal, the pain can be excruciating and it's so easy for us to indulge in that ridiculous fantasy that somehow we can stop this process called birth. We cannot. We just have to hang on. We have to endure. With that absolute solemn assurance of God in our hearts. Romans 8.11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit. Soon new life will come. But at this moment, there are birth pains. And then finally, to make the same point again, but with I think even more profound depth. Paul goes on to say, this is the experience of God. Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. This world is confusing, he says. This is part of its frustration and our, our, our frustration. We don't know often what to pray. But the Spirit of God helps us, says Paul. The Spirit of God intercedes for us on our behalf. He speaks into the ear of God the Father 
for us. And of course we think, we immediately think, what the Spirit of God is bound to do is to turn our inchoate groanings into a clear set of petitions before God the Father. Because up there, in his holy courts, surely he's sitting there at peace knowing all things, knowing all the answers, knowing what we ought to be praying for. And so he turns our confusion into his absolute and peaceful, calm clarity. Please God do this. That's what Joe Christian down there means. And Paul doesn't say that. He says something quite different. He says, yes... The Holy Spirit knows exactly what needs to be prayed, exactly what needs to be said into the ear of God. Here is what it is. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. In other words, the only thing for God to hear in his ear is groans. There are no words that can fully express the frustration of this world. Sometimes the most spirit-inspired, the most eloquent prayer we can pray is a groan. One of the rare moments in scripture when we see what God says to himself as God the Spirit speaks to God the Father. And here in the courts of heaven we see he groans. God suffers. Here Paul is offering us after realism. That's what all creation goes, for, goes through. After the call to endurance, he's offering us comfort, isn't he? Not the comfort that removes pain, but the comfort that assures us that actually to groan in our present existence sometimes brings us closest to God. He and we are like two mourners beside the bedside of an unconscious dying creation. And what can we do? The deepest thing that we can do is embrace and weep together. When we weep as Christians, we weep with God. He and we know one day Neither he, nor we, nor actually the whole of creation will ever weep again. But in the meantime, 
he and we reign. Now I want that to penetrate deep into your heart this morning. Because I know I am speaking to people who either are suffering or will suffer. You know, when, we're, when we're young, we are just so naive about the things that we, we may go through. But will you go through them? And if we haven't begun to see that that is our calling as Christians, then we will find that far from those experiences deepening our relationship with Christ, the relationship will perhaps even evaporate. I know I am speaking to people who will die here. Some of you will die before me. Some afterwards, but unless Christ comes again, we will all face that experience. Is that something that um, the final mark of a faith that wasn't worth anything? Final defeat? Will that moment for you be the final moment when you draw your closest to the living God and know at the most profound level as you groan with a failing body that he is with me and he too groans You see, in the, in the Western world, frankly, I think, we peddle ourselves a lie. We hide the reality of suffering and Christians too spend their whole lives just running away from it, trying to build a little bubble of pleasure and delight and happiness around themselves. And that is not authentic Christian living. Where are the people who are prepared actually to take up their cross daily and live for Christ? What is your life going to be like? Will it be a life of sober and yet glorious faith that knows that we still live in a world that suffers that knows that actually we just have the first fruits of the spirit so that joy is interspersed with the most excruciating longing that knows that actually whilst God still agonises over this world how could I possibly think that I can somehow be immune from that and finds in that the most exquisite, glorious 
but painful communion with Christ. Edith Sitwell wrote a poem during the blitz in the Second World War. She um, imagined the 2,000 years or so that had occurred since uh, the life and death of Christ. She imagined that as if it was a long rainy day, so appropriate for today. She wrote a poem about Christ's suffering through that period. I'm going to read a little bit of it for you. Edith Sidwell's poem, Still Falls the Rain. Still falls the rain. Still falls the blood from the starved man's wounded side. He bears in his heart all wounds, those of the light that died, the last faint spark in the self-murdered heart, the wounds of the sad, uncomprehending dark, the wounds of the baited bear, the blind and weeping bear whom the keepers beat on his helpless flesh, the tears of the hunted hare. Still falls the rain. And then, oh, I'll leap up to my God who pulls me down. See, see where Christ's blood streams in the firmament. It flows from the brow we nailed upon the tree. Deep to the dying, to the thirsting heart that holds the fires of the world, dark smirched with pain as Caesar's laurel crown. Then sounds the voice of one who, like the heart of man, was once a child, who among beasts was lame. Still do I love, still shed my innocent light, my blood for thee. Sitwell speaks, you see, of that blood flowing to the dying, to the thirsting heart that holds the fires of the world dark smirched with pain as a laurel crown. That blood only speaks to those who will accept the crown of suffering. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory.